1: Well, everyone, welcome back to a very exciting episode of the Storybox Podcast. Today, my friends, I'm delighted to welcome a very prominent author that many of you, if you are in the Christian world, or even some of you that may not be in the Christian world, would more than likely know, Ellen Vaughn, who is a New York Times best-selling author, and she's known for writing many, many great books, becoming Elizabeth Elliot. And today's topic of conversation, actually, we're talking about Being Elizabeth Elliot, which is a brand new book. It's the authorised biography. Uh, And one of the things that I liked is that you're in northern Virginia at the moment and you enjoy reading, hiking, drinking coffee with friends and staring pensively at the ocean.
0: Yes, of course.
1: I am very much the same. (laughs) I do the exact same thing. It is so peaceful, so calming. Like you yeah, get in almost like this to, trance.
0: Yeah, and you have to have the coffee, though, to do your staring properly.
1: I don't drink coffee, but I'll oh, have I'll no. have water instead. So I failed you on that, right. that front, Ellen.
0: All right, well, we can still be friends, I think.
1: <laughs> I'm happy about that, actually. <laughs> I didn't totally ruin it. Uh, but Ellen, yes. instead of me gushing more and more about who you are and what you've done, <laughs> I thought I would ask you to explain to my audience who you are, what you do, and why you do it. So, Ellen, please take it away.
0: (laughs) Well, and three days later I might finish. No. Um, You know, I was one of those nerdy little kids who loves to read books, right? And the reason I love books was because they take you to places you've never been. Oh, yeah. And I love just the magic of books where you could experience these characters, these people who you fall in love with, who have adventures. And so I purposed, particularly after reading C.S. Lewis when I was a Mm -hmm. young girl, that I wanted to be a writer when I grew up. And after many twists and turns, I I felt very shocked and gratified that I was able to pursue the vocation that I love. And so I've I've written about 25 books over uh, the last few decades. And typically I write books about topics that I'm curious about, you know? And so I can become intrigued with things like, oh, my goodness, what about the nature of time and how does that work? And how does a human being who is finite and trapped in time have a relationship with a God who's eternal and outside of time? Things like that. And uh, so, my friend, I I came. um, uh, My agent came to me with the opportunity to do the authorized biography of Elizabeth Elliot and. I was intrigued by her story. Now, a lot of millennials and younger people are like, who is Elizabeth Elliot and why should I care? But <laughs> for people of my generation, she was sort of this this, uh, this hero because she was a really gutsy missionary in the second half of the 20th century to Ecuador with her husband, Jim Elliot, who she loved deeply. And they had a 10 month old child and they we're working with the Kichwa people, but developed this interest in another indigenous tribal group that basically lived with kind of a Stone Age mentality, naked, deep in the jungle. And uh, these people, now known as the Waudani, uh, had a cycle of violence. If there was any offense, then I kill you, and then you come back and kill me, and then my family kills your family and this this retribution uh that was exterminating them as a people group mm. and so elizabeth and jim elliot developed this real burden along with four of their colleague couples and after a uh a number of peaceful kind of indications jim and the other four men went into the waudani territory and basically through a misunderstanding the five young men were all speared to death. And so Elizabeth Elliot, she's 28. She has a young child and she prays this really unlikely prayer. She says, God, if you want me to do anything about the Waudani, I'm available. And I really, as a Christian, I really like that prayer. God, if you want me to do anything about a certain situation, I'm available. I don't know how you might want to use me, but here I am. And so she prayed that prayer and ended up going and living among this Stone Age tribal people who had slaughtered her husband and friends. Mm. And it was almost like a living out of Christianity. She didn't speak their language. She didn't go in and preach to them. She lived among them, like Jesus came to earth and lived among us. And through her example, that embodiment, if you will, of forgiveness, many of the the Waodani saw a different way to live. And they determined to to stop that cycle of violence and fear that had just enslaved them for generations. Mm. And so because of that story, Elizabeth Elliot was a hero and one of the few female Christian leaders in, in that space in the second half of the 20th century. She wrote two dozen books. She spoke all over the world. And so as a young woman, I was impressed by her life. So that's a long answer as to why Elizabeth Elliot and why I've spent the last few years immersed in her life doing volumes one and two, which you held up at the outset mm. uh, about this remarkable woman.
1: She is a remarkable woman. And I remember, I think I was in high school and one of my teachers actually gave me a copy of the movie End of the Spear and mm-hmm. I I didn't know who it was about at the time, but I watched the movie and I was really awestruck by Mm. and captivated actually by the story and what happened. And the first part of the story is obviously Jim going there and the other guys being killed. And that was a very graphic and heart-wrenching moment. And then the second part of it was the tribe accepting almost and welcoming Elizabeth into the tribe. And mm-hmm. the fact that she was a woman, and it was just a really, really profound story. And and the more like when I went through high school, and the more I grew up, and the more I started to think about her testimony, her way of, about living life, and I'm she wasn't mm-hmm. in my generation, but it was amazing how her testimony has been shared and has spread over the course of many generations. And I think that's a really important thing. Um, Why do you think that it has been spread and has been so powerful for a lot of people, not just your generation, but mine and so many others?
0: Sure. I think because she dared to go outside the box. She um, did things that were counterintuitive because of a deeply held belief that These are things that God wanted her to do for the betterment of others. And I think we all respect that kind of um, gutsy approach to faith and to life and even to holding one's own life lightly, if you will. And so I think that her life and what she did, which became a very famous story, it was covered enormously in the Mm. worldwide press when it happened. But that became uh, kind of the platform that made her into an authentic hero because she had done this. She, you know, I'm gonna to listen to what she has to say. And then she was an incredibly articulate, brilliant uh speaker and a great observer of human nature. She was a beautiful writer. And so really the second part of her life was, was her, her writing life. And again, the power of books to go out and for uh, people, not just of her own generation, but those who followed to read the story and then to profit by, by her insights. And so for me, that's, that's why the project also was intriguing. And then, Jay, I was given all of her, or loaned, I should say, um, all of her journals, okay? Mm. And so she kept over the decades of her long life uh, dozens of journals they start when she's 11 years old and that journal is written all in pencil and it says no boys allowed on the cover <laughs> and then all through like world war ii that when she was in college and then going to ecuador and then the loss of her husband and all of these episodes like dramatic chapters in a story unfolding in the pages of these journals and she was a beautiful writer and It was such a, it was almost like time travel for me because I'm reading these pages that are 50 years old, 60 years old, right? I'm reading these pages and she doesn't know what's going to happen when she's writing those words, just like all of us when we write in our, if we're journal people and we write. um, And yet I know what's coming. And so that was kind of a surreal sense of of her story unfolding in real time, as all of ours do, and then sort of wanting to make her story relatable to other people. And uh, I don't know if you have any impressions of her, but for me, I admired her a lot. I heard her speak different times, met her a few times And I admired her a lot, but I wasn't sure I liked her a whole lot (laughs) because she was very formidable and severe and tall, and she just seemed remote, okay? Not the person you'd want to have, you know, sit by the beach and and discuss. (laughs) Maybe. And so, but in the pages of the journals, I saw this really relatable flesh and blood human being who I like quite a bit. And so that's the person I tried to bring out in, in the books.
1: I think for many of us, like when we look at someone as prominent as Elizabeth, we kind of make them this icon or this hero in our minds. And then when we have the opportunity to go and meet them face to face, we sort of get a little bit shy and we tense up. And I remember when I first started doing interviews, I had no idea what I was doing. And you sort, of, you sort of build your way up to it. And then when I met one of my personal heroes, I froze. <laughs> I'm like, uh-huh. what's going on here? I'm, I'm meant to run the interview. I, I want to ask this person a bunch of questions. And I just didn't know what to ask. And like yeah. even yeah. before this person showed up on the Zoom call, I wasn't meeting them like in person or anything. It was just through Zoom. But I was yeah. like, how am I going to get the most out of this person? So it's it's fascinating how humans think that way, to be honest with you. <laughs> right,
0: right, right. And then don't you, I mean, in the course of the interview, then did that person become like a real human being to you and it eased up like you were able to relate?
1: Exactly. Like that's the, when you see the person for being a person, yes. I think – we look at their works and what they've done and we idolize that. And then we attach that to sort of like this hero-like nature of them that makes any sense. And it's the weird psychological element that we do it. Like we think that we can't do that. So we want to do it. But, yeah, yeah, it's just a a crazy thing. But I've noticed that we're all human beings at the end of the day. (laughs) We're all flesh and blood. So um, let's just all connect. And if you yes. stuff up, you stuff up.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's okay. Exactly. You know, and I feel like there's something in human nature. It's fascinating when you look at the culture of celebrity, yeah. you know, that, that in, in every um, developed nation, we have our, our celebrities that we hold up and we put on pedestals and, and we're fascinated by their lives and, I think, sadly, sometimes that happens in the Christian space as well, where we have our Christian celebrities, and they're all holier than anyone could possibly be, and they never have any struggles or doubts or, yeah. or fears or confusion like we all struggle with. And so I, Elizabeth Elliot really struggled with that in her own life. Sometimes people would hold her up as this incredibly courageous woman who who was impervious to fear or pain or suffering. And that was not the case at all. And I think we're not well served as, as a Christian. We're not well served when we put um spiritual heroes up on pedestals yeah. because all you have to do is read the bible and you see <laughs> that the 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 heroes of the pages of the bible the people who jesus hung out with his closest friends were all a wreck you know they were um flawed human beings and the beauty is that the grace of god flows over all of our own uh, human inadequacies you know mm. and Story goes on, and so I w- I wanted in these biographies again to not present Elizabeth as someone who oh if only we could aspire to be as courageous as she was um, no here's here's someone's story and there's plenty that we can relate to and glean great things from that's part of why we read books but also we're not less than because we haven't taken that particular life path
1: no. It's also interesting how human beings, we're the ones that make other human beings famous. So yeah. it's, it's a strange yeah. phenomenon in, in retrospect when you actually think about it. It's like, well, this person actually wouldn't be famous if it wasn't for me, making right. them sort of famous, like even though they're doing something in the world of celebrity, let's say, or they're making yeah. a movie, even in the Christian sense, like you've got these pastors that are, really well-known and really famous for what they've said or what they've done. Mm. And really what they're doing is just speaking God's word usually. And so like we're idolizing them for speaking God's word, but it really should be, we should be idolizing God's word more because Mm. that's, that's fundamental, not the person who said it. They may have said it in a way that has moved us, but I just find it really, really fascinating. So that's why, I mean even even yourself Ellen like have you come across this world of celebrity how have you managed to navigate it because you are really well known
0: Well it's um I'm I'm gratified that you think so I don't <laughs> tend to feel that way at all so um I think you know to go back to what you're saying is I think Social media, too, just, you know, like, I mean, makes that whole thing even more complicated. You know, how many likes or or retweets or, you know, all all, just the that whole atmosphere can be pretty toxic, you know. And I think that the uh, one of the few advantages of getting older is that (laughs) I find myself just much more with the sense of, oh, Lord, I'm a mess. But I'm your mess, you know, and and so any uh, sometimes if I have speaking engagements or something, there will be people who kind of maybe put you in a different category. And the first thing I want to do is say, no, we all struggle with the same things, and we're all here to help one another. You know, really, I think the role of community is so so important that we not isolate and and think of people as out there, but know that we're, we're all connected mm. and uh, there is only one hero who will not disappoint us. And that's Christ himself.
1: Amen to that. I wanted yeah. to go to a very, I guess, emotional place for you, Ellen. I was a bit, little bit, a little bit perplexed with this conversation in general, mainly because there's two stories <laughs> yeah there's your story and there's Elizabeth's story so I'm like which one do I want to dive into a little bit I guess both in a way but to sort of set up the author as it were talking mm-hmm. about the person she's writing about I wanted to ask you something personal and it's basically you've put it in the dedication in memory of and gratitude for Lee Vaughan March ninth. Uh, 1958 to July 20th, 2022, which is not that long ago. Mm-hmm. And you've got a Bible verse, Job 1, 21, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Are you able to share what that means to you and why you put it there?
0: Well, you know, I wasn't sure about putting it there, that dedication, because I didn't want too much of, of me to leak into the book. But then, on the other hand, um, what happened, Jay, was when the um, this book has a very poignant kind of emotional centerpiece, which is uh, a period of Elizabeth Elliot's life most people don't know much about. I certainly didn't. Uh, and that is the true love of her life, that in middle age, she fell passionately head over heels in love with a, um, a man who was very much uh, a kindred spirit to her named Addison Leach. Mm-hmm. And they married, and it was the happiest season I think of Elizabeth's life. And and then again in the pages of the journal, I'm reading her journal, and and um, Addison has this growth on his lip. You know, um, wonder he needs to go to the doctor. Oh God, please don't let it be cancer. It's cancer. And then this long, horrific journey of this metastasizing cancer and the slow. Disintegration of this man who she loved and his death. And so, to write that section of the book, you know, as an author, you kind of have to put on the person you're writing about, put on their story. And at the time, I was writing about things I had not experienced. So, I wrote that whole section. And literally, as God would have it, within about 48 hours, my own husband, Lee, had to go to the emergency room. And he ended up being diagnosed with this aggressive, malignant, rapacious, inoperable brain tumor. And within just a few weeks of his diagnosis, Lee passed away. And for me, in the midst of, of writing Elizabeth's story, and then, of course, with that emergency, shoving you know the manuscript aside and, and living my own story that was such a Eerie kind of echo of what had happened to Elizabeth. I I felt a couple of things. What one was this sense of um, nothing is wasted. I thought, God, I really didn't want to be part of the same club with Elizabeth, um, but here we are. And I felt such a strong sense of God's presence, and and even in my husband's passing, our three grown kids and their. Um, spouses were were with us and it was a sweet time because if christian faith is true then lee is better off now than he has ever been and we could release him and and i'm very thankful that he is no longer suffering and that he is in the presence of absolute joy so obviously I took time away from the manuscript, but when I returned to it really last fall, I guess um, it was with, I think death gives you a more of a concentration of the mind, you know, mm-hmm. what is important, what is not, what is extraneous. And so um, at any rate, that uh, life event for me uh, shaped the writing really of the rest of Elizabeth Elliot's story.
1: The perspective of loss and grief as you're writing Elizabeth's story and you're learning about her loss and her grief because it was she lost Jim and then she's losing another love of her life. There's been a lot of loss and a lot of grief. Having been someone reading that and then writing about it, What was the perspective like for you as you're writing it and then after when Lee passed away?
0: Yes. Well, I think one of the themes of Elizabeth's life and I think one of her greatest contributions uh, was her, her view of suffering because all of us experience loss and suffering in this life, and Elizabeth defined it Suffering is having something you don't want or wanting something you don't have. And so that, that really applies to things both large and small, right? And I feel like what I appreciate about Elizabeth is she didn't try to put the mystery of suffering in a box. Like, here's what we all need to do. You know, we need to do point A, point B, point C, and here are all the Bible verses that go with that. And then... you're you're done. You processed it. I think that the Bible, if you look at it, is full of lament. Look at the Psalms, you know, of people who love and trust God crying out to him in the pains that this life brings. And we can be honest before him. I think that is a big part of Elizabeth's legacy and something that I would affirm as well in in my own losses. Uh, I think, too, that she had such a sense of Uh, the mystery of God is much bigger than anything a finite human being can figure out. And again, he defies formulas. He defies explanation. Sometimes Christians are like, well, this happened so God could do this and this and this. And the grieving person is like, I don't care. You know, um, that, that may or may not be true. And it is not helpful, but the, the ability to just stand before the mystery of God and trust him in the face of loss. Is he good or is he not? And uh, to lean into him. I think, I think that's Elizabeth's greatest contribution in the body of her writings and really in how she lived her life. It was all about um, the reality of the God that we do not always see
1: what do you think is the ultimate purpose from reading all of elizabeth's story and even from your own story what do you believe is the ultimate purpose of pain suffering and loss
0: <laughs> well that's a a huge cosmic question there <laughs> i know <laughs> yeah yeah as as a, a a follower of christ and a person who who believes the bible i think the purpose of suffering is ultimately um, to to refine us like gold, um, and also to to cause us, ironically enough, to trust God more. And the purpose, really this this sounds har- hard for someone, um, some of your listeners, perhaps, but the sense of the purpose is the glory of God. You know. The Heidel is which Catechism is it that says that what is the chief uh, purpose of of humankind it is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, and I think there is a sense in in this glorifying of God even in the the difficulties that happen in this life, inexplicable injustice and betrayal and pain. Look what happened to Jesus Christ Himself in His earthly life. We regard all of that, and yet somehow that's going to be swallowed up
1: Mm. in
0: the place where my husband is right now with, I think suffering is going to work backwards into pure joy.
1: Which if I think about my own life and all the things that Mm -hmm. I've journeyed through and I'm only 27, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's crazy to even think that (laughs) now, but I look at it and I do see that there is still joy in spite of the pain and the suffering. Right. We may right. not we may not like it, but they mm-hmm. say that joy is a choice. So mm-hmm. they, they also talk about long suffering and mm-hmm. this idea that, like you look at Lamentations as well, the Psalms, it's full of it, people crying out to God and asking God to take away the pain and the suffering. But mm-hmm. I, I don't think that is the right sort of response. I mean, we, we do that naturally because we don't like the pain or the, the suffering in our life because it hurts. And yes, we don't how like many pain. of us, we don't like it. How many of us like it? Mm-hmm. Um, although I put myself through a lot of pain every single morning <laughs> going for a run. And some, pe- some people may call me a masochist, <laughs> but I know that it's it's good and yeah. we may not like it in the moment but afterwards we can look forward to the the element of hey look i did that yeah. i was able to get through that yeah. and there is incredible moments within the suffering where i i go that was incredible that was mm-hmm. that was amazing but it's yeah. even better when i get to the other side and yeah. that's what i think the christian life especially is one of pain and suffering, but it's also one of incredible amounts of joy. Anyway, I think I'm going off on tangents here. You know, <laughs> well, <explaining. laughs>
0: well, good tangents, you know. And I think I have a friend who's who's been um, um, a quadriplegic since she was 17. She dove into shallow water mm. and broke her neck. And she's been in a wheelchair for what? Um, almost 60 years, I think. It's Joni. Johnny Erickson Tata, wow. who is a dear friend. And she says that, and she knows about suffering because ironically enough, even though she's a quadriplegic, she has horrific pain. And she has has said, and it's just unbelievable, that in that pain she experiences an intimacy and an experience of the love of God that she experiences at no other time. Mm-hmm. And I just lift my hands in wonder at that. So at any rate, I think that you're uh, something you said a number of paragraphs ago is true. And that is um, I think part of peace in this life is knowing that our, we don't choose our circumstances, stuff happens, right. But we do choose how we can respond. And that, that is, that is the dignity of human freedom and choice. and, uh, God can really use our choices in the midst of of the terrible things that happen so often.
1: I wanted to ask you about a chapter, chapter five, Playboy. Uh, <laughs> what what is that about?
0: <laughs> well, um, let's see. I think I titled that chapter uh, re- making reference to Playboy because I wanted to capture people's attention. Right? You know, yes. you don't have Elizabeth Elliot and Playboy kind of in the same. Um, the Same space, do you and uh, uh, she made reference, uh, to um, she had heard that Playboy back in its heyday, this is we're talking the 1960s, okay, mm. published um, great articles, and so she had gotten a copy because she wanted to read the articles, she was very intellectually curious about what was cutting edge or what was uh. Um, what were the New York Times bestsellers in, in secular thought, you know, at the time. So she bought Playboy to read the great articles. Right. And um, then she was also very curious, like who poses in Playboy, you know, so <laughs> that's your explanation there.
1: <laughs> that is funny. <laughs>
0: yeah, It's not the topic of the whole chapter, but it was just a teaser to make you
1: question Someone like Elizabeth actually subscribed to Playboy. Of all no, things. she didn't
0: subscribe to it. She, <laughs> she bought a copy back in the she day. She
1: bought a copy. That's funny. Uh, yeah. Does she still have yeah. it? Is I don't paper-
0: know. <laughs> I I highly doubt she kept it. I you know, all of her papers were loaned to me and, and suffice it to say that Playboy was not there, okay?
1: <laughs> <laughs> There's my curiosity going.
0: Yeah, yeah
1: I see where your mind goes, yeah. But Chapter 3 is Elizabeth Elliot and the Psychedelic 60s. Yeah. Can you please expand on that? Because, again, <laughs> my level of curiosity is expanding with the psychedelic mm-hmm. aspect and wondering oh, whether yeah. she took any psychedelics.
0: Yes, yes. Well, that that would be hard to imagine. But um, the the beginning of this book is in the 1960s, and I love history. And I think the 60s were a fascinating decade. Uh, I wrote a book that became a movie, Jesus Revolution, and it's about the 1960s. Right. And so um, I I was fascinated because it's a time when when uh, American culture had been very kind of square and boxy and, and and. uh, And there was just this polarization of young people just wanting to resist authority and to throw off conventions. And they wanted to find themselves through sex, drugs and rock and roll and Eastern religions. And it was a wild time in America. And there were terrible political assassinations. There was the Vietnam War. There was all this cultural upheaval and A big part of that, which appears more in Jesus' revolution than it does in Elizabeth Elliot's story, of course, was was the drug culture. And LSD was was legal in the U.S. till 1965. That's just crazy. But anyway, uh, Elizabeth did not uh, march in the streets or or, uh, take psychedelic drugs. But she, in some ways, was a rebel during that period. And what she was rebelling against... Were, were kind of the religious conventions of this is how Christians think, this is what they do. this is the tidy answer to complex problems. this and and she wanted to break out of that mold and have and really live a faith that was much more connected to real life than she felt the legalistic faith that maybe she grew up with was. So, Sorry,
1: no drugs. (laughs) (laughs) Which is probably a good thing, to be honest with you. Yeah, I I would think so. The era that you grew up in, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, kind of reminds me of today, to be honest with you, like with what's going on, uh, revamp of things at the moment. The world is going a little bit crazy. But Jesus Revolution, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, did you ever expect it to go as well guess we use the terminology viral as it has i mean it became a movie recently right
0: yeah Yeah. and and you know uh the movie did really well and so uh that was um a wonderful thing you know it's a great thing to write a book and then have it become uh, a movie that was well done and that enjoyed incredible audience response and uh so um I wrote Jesus Revolution back in 2018 with Greg Laurie, who was a dear friend and he experienced, you know, that, that he was a hippie dude, Mm -hmm. you know, who did every hallucinogenic he could find, you know, and then actually came to a relationship with Christ through the Jesus Revolution, this, this incredible awakening um, among the hippies. And um, so then I was working on Elizabeth Elliot kind of, not like I'd forgotten about it, but then the movie rights had been bought and then COVID happened. And then John Irwin, uh, the, the director, um, made the film and it came out uh, in February of uh, 23. And so that has been really fun just to see the response. And I think it struck a chord. That's why it was popular. And people hungry for authentic Christianity, people hungry for for some good news. You know, in our very polarized culture today, where you have two sides in, in North America anyway, or in, in the U.S., two sides shouting at one another really loudly, and um, so I think people are were hungry for some sort of spiritual answer, spiritual good news uh, in the midst of of our time.
1: I think we're missing a level of authenticity. In Mm -hmm. today's day and age, I think Elizabeth's story is one that is truly authentic as -hmm. well, which is why I think it has had so much impact over the generations too. And I think another reason why Jesus' revolution has done so well too is because their authenticity Mm is sort of being stripped away as culture has changed and you've got these two divides where everything is fake. And mm-hmm. humans are very good at determining whether or not something is fake or real. Yeah. And yeah. Australians will let you know straight away, <laughs> and they'll they'll make you pay if it is a lie, um, yeah. as it were. Like they hold you accountable really well. At least some of them try to. But that's uh, in, that's ingrained in the culture. But was um Kelsey Grammer part of Jesus Revolution the movie?
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's he, who it was. <clears throat> yes. So Kelsey Grammer and then, um, oh, dear, I'm blanking out on his name, Jonathan Rumi, who plays Jesus in The Chosen. Yes. And, um, and then an actor, Joel Courtney. So they, they had the three sort of male lead parts. And I thought Kelsey Grammer did an amazing job. Um, so anyway, it's the it's interesting, too, because a movie is a very different genre than a book, right? The book has a lot more history in it. It shows what happens to the characters over decades, really. The movie needs to be something that in two hours can entertain an audience and leave them with a narrative arc that's emotionally satisfying. Mm. And I think I think uh John Irwin did a great job at that.
1: I'm a huge fan of John Irwin's movies. Um uh-huh. and the the ability to turn a book into a movie. Do you think that they're going to be making a movie out of
0: <laughs> Yeah, well, um, you know, different, you mentioned End of the Spear. Now that focuses more on the story of Nate Saint yeah. and, and Steve Saint than it does on uh Jim Elliott and Elizabeth Elliott. Um, uh, there've been other um much interest over the years in making a film about Elizabeth's story. I think it'd be a great story. I think it could really be compelling as you said authentic uh and gutsy and it would have human interest to it so but what do i know we'll see if anyone out there is moved to uh to take it up
1: i'm pretty sure they will um (laughs) i've got quite a few more questions for you ellen if you don't mind maybe i've gone over time not sure how long we have together but (laughs) obviously i want to be respectful of your time i did wanted to ask you about the idea of doubt, self-doubt. Have you ever struggled with doubting yourself and whether or not you thought that writing these books or writing Elizabeth's story would, you know, go anywhere or yeah. have any impact?
0: Yeah. Well, I think any writer who tells you that he or she does not struggle with self-doubt is lying. Um, and... uh It's funny because here Elizabeth herself, who, as I said, wrote two dozen books and right every book she wrote. She's like, oh, I cannot do this. And and I feel very much the same way. Um, And my friends are very long suffering because every book I moan about, you know, I'll never get it done. I'm going to just get a job at Starbucks and be a barista. (laughs) There's no hope for my my vocation. So. I think that's actually, that self-doubt is a healthy part of of the writing life. I mean, people who say, oh, I just love to write, and it's a little voice talks in my ear, and then I write, and then it's done, um, I don't think are real writers.
1: Do you ever struggle with writer's block?
0: Sure. Yeah, but I have a cure for that. Okay, so I have several cures. Do you want to know what they are, or do you want to get to the next question?
1: Does it involve the staring at the ocean with a coffee?
0: Uh, No, it does not involve that, okay, but that's a great start. (laughs) No, it involves, let's see, the spinning chair, okay? You have to have an office chair that spins. And so when you're having writer's block, you sit in front of your laptop or whatever you're writing on and you spin in your chair, around and around. and when it stops, you just start writing, okay? And then you have the mustard principle, Okay. And oh. that is when you squeeze mustard onto a hamburger, what comes out first?
1: I've never done it.
0: <laughs> oh, you're not. Okay. What usually comes out first is the watery stuff.
1: Uh-huh. And then the
0: mustard starts to flow. And the same thing happens with writing. Like you can't wait for the perfect beginning. You spin in your chair, you start, and then maybe a couple pages in, then the mustard starts to flow. Okay. Okay and and then you can always go back and cut and edit later but i think writer's block is something you just have to work through you can't wait for inspiration you have to write at the same time every day if at all possible yeah. and um, and if you spin in your chair and then let the watery stuff come out and the third thing that's really important is a faithful dog by your side okay because my dog loves everything I write, and is he's very encouraging.
1: What sort of dog have you got?
0: Well, let's see. At the moment, there is a, a Woodle, which is a Wheaton Terrier Poodle mix, hilarious dog, and then a Husky. Ah. And the Husky, yeah, loves to howl at me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like you're slacking off, Ellen. Come on!
0: Right, right, right. right. Like, <laughs> get back to it. Yeah. yeah,
1: I've got a German Shepherd.
0: Um, okay but, yeah so is your german shepherd supportive of everything you write
1: um well i'm gonna say yes but uh-huh. she <laughs> all she wants yeah. to do is get me out of the office or really my bedroom and, and just play with it yeah. so i take yeah. that as her level of you know me needing a break like she knows when i need a right. break for, away from writing right. and and work And come on, Jay, let's, let's play. This is what she looks like.
0: Oh, I love German Shepherds. Yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah. So she has a role to play.
1: A big role, but Mm -hmm. what were some of the challenging aspects for you, Ellen, writing this book?
0: Well, uh, the usual challenges. Uh, I think it's, it was very, it's hard to use a lot of original material from which, one must work. Okay. So all those journals and sometimes teeny writing that I had to read with a magnifying glass, you know, and that was very tedious. There was no quick way to digest all of these days and days and days and, and months and years of someone else's life in order to write about it. And um, I think the sheer enormity of the amount of material was absolutely overwhelming. Mm -hmm. I've written in the past um, two novels and novels might seem by comparison much easier because you're making it up. It doesn't have to adhere to truth. I mean, it does in terms of, of its veracity or its plausibility, but but not to the outline of someone else's life. I think biography is is difficult for that reason. I must say that Elizabeth's family and Elizabeth Elliott Foundation were so supportive and and really um, kindred spirits with um, absolutely no expectations put on me of how the material would be handled or dealt with. Uh, And they were also so generous in supplying so much original material that otherwise is not available.
1: Two final questions for you, Ellen. What what does your faith mean to you?
0: Again, I think the older I get, and particularly in the aftermath of my husband's death, I think there is such an incredible sense of it's true. God's love is real, and my hope is real. And I don't know how anyone could face aging itself and the death of loved ones without a sense of a life beyond this life, because if this is all there is, then that's kind of pitiful. Um, I mean, there are so many great things in this life, but I think you know what I mean. So so really, um, the older I get, I feel like faith takes on a robust sort of simplicity to it at the same time that the mysteries are as huge as ever.
1: How are you feeling today?
0: I feel very robust and and joyous. How are you feeling today?
1: I'm feeling amazing because of this conversation, to be honest with you. It's going to make my day. But I guess the reason why I was asking that question in particular was, I mean, with everything that has gone on in your life and, like, the overwhelming nature of it, like, how is it making you feel? Like, there's a sense of gratitude and overwhelming joy all those wonderful things that just yeah. come into yeah. play.
0: Right. And we can't rely too much on our feelings. Right. Um, as if that equals reality, but you mentioned gratitude. I think that's one of the radical keys to living well.
1: Is, oh, yeah.
0: And and I must say too, the book I'm working on now is taking me to a lot of uh, developing nations. I've recently been in um, South Africa and Rwanda and India and Nepal I'm going to Ukraine and Moldova in about a month or so. And those travels and, and interviewing followers of Christ in those places, um, that enlivens my own faith and reinforces my own gratitude. So I think having the big picture perspective is really important.
1: We could spend a little bit longer talking about what you've seen regarding the persecuted church or even people just that are persecuted in countries versus here in Western culture like, Mm -hmm. and the aspects of being able to freely worship Christ Mm -hmm. here versus Mm -hmm. people worshiping over there. I mean, the stark reality of that, like it just Mm -hmm. makes you, it makes me at least appreciate the freedom that I have at the moment. Yes.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: It's an amazing feeling. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I totally, um, I think it's, if, if there was a way that every comfortable North American Christian could, could, um, could spend time with brothers and sisters in faith who are in places that where they're not free to worship or, or um, conversions are against the law or uh, so many other privations. Um, I think it's, it's important for us to realize the the incredible gifts that we we happen to have here, you know?
1: What do you love the most about yourself and your story? (laughs) Uh,
0: I've never been asked that. I don't think what I love the most about myself, my goodness. But um, I think one gift that God has given me that helps me a lot is humor. And so um, just the ability to be able to see things, um, I don't know with a strong sense of the absurd there's much that is absurd in this life and that's okay and um I think one of the great gifts of heaven that is not often really understood is the gift of of joy and laughter that we'll enjoy there so I feel um a lot of sort of um echoes of that in this life and I'm grateful for that
1: mm-hmm. Ellen, where can people get a copy of your brand new book?
0: Yes. Well, they they all should run out and and get 50 copies immediately. And uh, so they can do that on the usual, um, you know, online um, venues like um, Amazon or Christianbook.com or um, any other, um, just Google it. And uh, they could go to my pitiful website, EllenVaughn.com, and you can order it there as well. I think there's a link to Amazon.
1: Well, Ellen, I'll make sure everyone knows where to get a copy of the book. Thank yeah, you so we'll much it. for uh, your time, your story, your wisdom, and your advice, and for basically writing this book too. I'm sure it's going to be of immense impact for everyone that actually reads it. So thank hmm. you for joining me today on the Storybox podcast.
0: Thank you. Great to be with you, Jay.